Podcast One Production. I nearly bumped into three drug addicts as I left work the other day. They're in their 20s, but they appeared much older. They seemed oblivious to the shabby state they were in. I looked too long at one, and he reacted with pure hatred. He wanted to bash me right there on the footpath. His friends had to restrain him. He looked like many of the ice users I'd seen around. Unhinged, violent and unpredictable. Doomed. I wanted to find out why this horrible drug has become so popular and what happens to a family when ice takes hold of a young mind. Welcome to Adam Shand at Large. Ice is described as a recreational drug. Why then does it cause such misery and heartache? I went to see Toby Lawrence of Arrow Health in Melbourne for an answer. In most cases, uh, clients that are coming into Arrow Health are, are taking drugs to escape some sort of reality of theirs. That coupled with the, if they're suffering from the disease of addiction, their inability to, to move away from the downward spiral. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a disastrous cocktail. Synthetic drugs like ice have swept this country. It's made from precursor chemicals from God knows where, with side effects that few understand. The drugs that are coming onto the scene now, and this is one of the problems, they're more potent, they're acting on, on parts of the brain that people have never studied before, uh, they have untold physiological consequences, and, uh, and we, in all seriousness, don't know what the long-term effects might be. I grew up in Sydney in the 1970s when the heroin just swept the place, and we hated junkies, we didn't like them, their behaviour, robbing houses and things, but this ice thing, we seem to fear them now. Is this, what is it about ice? Ice has the ability to drop an individual's inhibition. So in the past, heroin addicts by their very nature are docile and, um, and soft. Once they're, if they're under the influence, they're generally of no threat to anybody. They're, they're generally just sleeping in the corner, whereas an ice addict is, is so pepped up and charged that they're capable of almost anything. I guess people use drugs for different reasons. I wasn't out there looking for enlightenment or realisation or, or any kinds of those things. I was just on a, on a path of self-destruction. And perhaps that's why I, I, I took a predilection for the drug I did. I met Tom D'Souza and his family in 2015 when I was working in Perth. I lived in a studio flat in Fremantle owned by Tom's grandfather, Ian D'Souza, a renowned artist, and his wife, Roz. They lived across the road in a Balinese-style house which opened onto a serene, tropical garden. Over two years, I became part of the family. I learnt of Tom's struggle with drugs, which contributed to the breakdown of his parents' marriage. At 23, Tom is softly spoken and thoughtful. He's tall and strong, with a surface physique and sun-bleached hair. He was a brilliant student in journalism when I met him. He seems to be good at whatever he turns his hand to, whether it's writing, photography, surfing or boxing, he's just blessed with talent and a will to succeed. The same will he once applied to his own annihilation, much to the horror of his parents, Rick and Karen D'Souza. There was a collective sense of disbelief that such terrible things could have happened. When he was 17, he apologised to me and it was never mentioned we moved forward. There was only one point I remember visualising myself standing over his grave. That's Rick. He's a stockbroker. While Karen works as a vet, they had four children together, including Tom. We're in kind of survival mode, really. You know, I just want my boy, my beautiful, smart, 
healthy boy back on track. This is not an expose on methamphetamine. There are plenty already out there. In fact, the drug was incidental to what happened to Tom's family. It was a symptom of the problems in this family. I mean, I guess that perhaps that's one of the reasons why I sought out ice. It fills you with false courage and, and confidence, and, and that was something that I, that I always lacked in. This is one person's harrowing journey to self-awareness. It took a while for Tom to trust me, but eventually he shared the story of his ice age. It all happened in the space of five years and from such promising beginnings. Tom's downward spiral began from a great height long before anyone realised there was a problem. I grew up in London. Uh, I was born there. I lived there till I was eight years old. Things were good. My dad worked a good job. Mum worked part-time as a vet. My dad worked as a foreign currency trader in the city. He had a good salary. I I took French lessons from a young age. Uh, I read a lot, took swimming squads, played cricket took piano lessons. It was a life of of middle-class affluence. Karen was from outback Western Australia. Her father had been an air traffic controller, so the family had moved around the state a lot in her youth, but it was a stable unit. She'd inherited a family trait of plain speaking. I don't give up. I, you know, and maybe in some cases I should give up on things, but, you know, it's just... It's just how we are, you know? I'm a problem solver. My job is problem solving. That's what I do. My mum had grown up in a, in a shouty household with an alcoholic father. To motivate her to perform better in, in school, he'd made disparaging comments. You had two very different personalities in that scenario. You had, you know, the fight and the flight type of person dealing with a, an incredibly stressful situation. I don't blame him at all. Um, it's just the way our makeup is. The fact that I was raised in an environment where my father left when I was quite young meant that I disengaged from things emotionally. And that served me quite well in terms of dealing with Tom. As a parent, you're not equipped to deal with this shit. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like, you can't rationalise, you can't talk to them, you, you don't know... You don't know what headspace they're in. All drug users are liars. Rick knew the hole that Tom fell into because he'd been there himself. I mean, I was a fucking heroin user in the fucking 80s. You know, I was a bit fucked up. And because I'd been in that hole, I kind of got it. It's kind of like, you've got, to get, you've got to get to the bottom. I don't know, I was angry, do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know that you know why you're, you've got low self-esteem or you're angry or, or, you know, you just have. Rick's father, Ian, played a part in his son's struggles. At 16, Ian's parents sent him from his home in Singapore to a Catholic seminary in Sydney where he trained to be a priest. But perhaps God had other plans for him. I met Tom's grandmother uh, when I was studying and then she fell pregnant. My first sexual experience, she fell pregnant. I had to do the right thing, so I married her. I had a bad marriage breakup. The law was quite different in the 60s. No matter who was right or wrong, the man always had the worst. Uh, The man lost everything. The wife uh, took everything. So I was advised by my lawyer to leave the country. So I left my kids, including Tom's father and, and his sister, when they were four and six. The law was so difficult in those days. If I, if I couldn't afford to pay any, any maintenance, if I was $10 behind, I was thrown in jail. And being in jail, I couldn't raise any money anyway, so there was no way out. 
So my lawyers put me on on the plane, and I flew back to Singapore without telling my my children. How did that sit with you at the time? I was devastated you know, to lose my kids because I was I was very close with them. He's never wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Certainly when I was 15 years of age, I missed having a father. I felt, you know, the lack of a father. And recently I felt the lack of a father. I feel inadequate as a father because I'm not the boating, camping, fishing kind of guy. There was that history of difficult relationship between your father and his father, Ian. Yeah. That was something that needed to be dealt with? Yes. Uh, I'm also not sure how that played out because Dad hasn't spoken to me at great lengths about, about this kind of thing. This is one of the questions yet to be resolved in this story for you. Yeah, I think so. And, and I mean, like we were discussing, you spoke to my dad over the phone and he was, he said, Tom doesn't understand that I've got issues. I've got my own stuff to sort out. And I don't because he doesn't talk to me about these, these kinds of things. These were the fault lines in the D'Souza family and Ice would work away at these weak points. And Karen and Rick, two very different people, would face the challenges ahead the best way they could. In London, the future seemed rosy. Rick had left his troubled family behind and made a great success of building a career and a family. I couldn't have asked for anything more, you know. Had a beautiful family, a husband who I loved, a good job. I thought my life was sweet. Tom was a very demanding child from the get-go. Clearly had a very big brain. He had a thirst for knowledge. As a kid, I was, I was insatiably hungry for, for knowledge and my family fed that appetite. My dad dedicated a lot of time to me when we were growing up, and life was good. Tom, at the age of six, sat entrance exams for, I think, King's College and for St Paul's in the UK. He got into St Paul's with Flying Colours, which is the top academic school in London. So why did they come back to Australia? Well, my father lost his job, and they'd been discussing coming back to Australia for a few years. Uh, England was always a, a temporary move. Uh, So we came back four days before my eighth birthday. My parents kind of constructed this sunny ideal of reintegration. They, Dad would find a job straight away and and me and my younger brother would fit in straight away at the local primary school. He went into the state system to start with and that was a disaster. He suffered panic attacks. He'd gone from doing his 15 times table to playing with water and sand. I struggled to integrate. Why? Well, firstly, it was a great cultural shock. I wasn't used to the physicality of the Australian playground. I struggled to relate to any of the cultural phenomenon that they continually referred to. I was a posh little English kid. So he was having panic attacks. So we got him out of that school. I'd been spotted by the principal slipping out of the school grounds and he he called me back to his office. Started having what he thought was was an asthma attack. He picked me up and carried me down the hill to my, my family home and... Mum just said, I'll go to your your room and read. And and after half an hour, she came to check on me. And I was kind of hunched in the centre of the room and with all my memorabilia from England and from St Paul's arranged in proud display around the room. And she obviously realised that that was the problem. They had to put me in a a more appropriate school. So they went to the school and, and had a meeting with the local primary school and there was no solution that they were capable of offering other than to move me up into year five, two years above my age group, which would have spelled social disaster. Tom's parents got him into the prestigious Hale School in Perth, which had a renowned program for gifted children, and all seemed to be back on track. In fact, better than ever, as far as Tom was concerned. Hale School was expensive and an hour on the bus from Fremantle, but it seemed right to Tom. Hale School was was an environment where competition was encouraged, um, and I kind of thrived with the challenge of my peers. And 
since I'd lived in England, I had this kind of mysterious fascination with surfing. Uh, my dad surfed. He wasn't working at the time and often he'd pick us up from school and often we'd detour via the beach. And these occasions form some of my fondest Australian memories. So where did it go wrong? Well, I think the financial pressures began to stack up and my father still hadn't found any work, so he, he began to turn his attention overseas and he found a job in Hong Kong. And early in 2005, he announced that he was, he was moving to Hong Kong. He'd live in Hong Kong and return maybe two weekends a month. And once Dad left, I realised this perceived fear of abandonment that's inherent in all, all children. As a child, abandonment equals death. It was an hour on the bus, and that was one surly brooding hour every day to school and, and from school. There was no more surfing with Dad before and after school. That, that made me quite resentful. Mum also struggled to perform the roles of two parents in my, in my father's absence. And things kind of began to fall into dysfunctional chaos without, without my father there. You know, he was a 10-year-old child. He's not responsible for his thoughts. His world has been turned upside down. He's copying the wrath of his mother. I'm copying the wrath of his mother on a nightly basis. And a lot of resentment gets built up in that period, I think. Two days into the interviews for this project, I was already finding myself being drawn into the family dynamic. The conflict between Tom and his mother began around the time that Rick left for Hong Kong and it simmered ever since. In 2017, he wrote about it for a newspaper and Karen had asked me how she could prevent publication of the story. I chose not to get involved in that and I was surprised that Karen was willing to speak to me. I was seen as a hard-ass by my ex-husband, by my kids, because I had to be. Someone had to be. And I'm always portrayed as, you know, when you came back from England, you were angry because you... No. Has anyone ever asked me if I was angry? No. He'd leave Hong Kong on the Midnight Express on Friday night and come back and, and play happy, functional families until Sunday afternoon when he'd, when he'd go back to Hong Kong. And it wasn't sustainable. I could feel... The tension between my parents was palpable. That disturbed me a little bit. While my father is away, I began to feel angry and resentful. And I mean, my intellect and my emotion had developed asynchronously and, and I wasn't capable of expressing those emotions. So they began to kind of roil inside of me and I didn't know how to let them out. Tom was still excelling academically. He won a full scholarship to another of Perth's first-class private schools, Scotch College. Rick returned to Perth from Hong Kong to stay, but Tom never shook the sense of abandonment and the mourning for his former life. When I went to Scotch, there was a ruthless culture of conformity and I stood out straight away. Uh, in the Assembly Hall, there are all these honour boards that line the walls of the Assembly Hall and my name was emblazoned in gold at the bottom of this scholarship list. I immediately stood out. That scholarship also came with great expectations too, that I didn't have the self-belief or the self-confidence to fulfil. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why I sought out ice. It, it fills you with false courage and, and confidence and, and that was something I always lacked in. He's going there, he's signing in, he's leaving school and going and selling ice outside the Esplanade Hotel at the age of 13. He actually wasn't selling ice. This was just a rumour passed on by school parents. And we hear nothing of this. The school doesn't report his absences. This went on for some months. And then suddenly it was too late. This is a bright boy that got a scholarship. He couldn't even write his name on the paper. I don't know why I wasn't informed. I didn't want to be known as the scholarship kid anymore. 
um, that caused me a great deal of angst in school and, and outside of school as well. I, I mean, down at the local footy club when people asked what school I went to, I was ashamed to tell them I'd won a scholarship to Scotch, so I, I began to sabotage my aura as, as the scholarship kid. And on many occasions he said to me, I don't want to be the smart kid, why can't I be like everyone else? And I remember saying to him, Tom, why can't you just be yourself? You know, just be yourself. When Tom began experimenting with marijuana with boys down at the skate park, it felt more like self-medicating to him. I, I felt a little woozy and kind of went home and everything felt all right. Because by now you've got a daily issue with how you're feeling mm. and the drug provides an escape. Did it seem like that? Yeah, it was just kind of a novel sensation, you know. I'd been caught in these feelings in my own head and this was kind of something beyond that. And it also came with a sense of belonging. Yeah, yeah, they, these guys invited me and then uh, we kind of felt like we, we instantly connected, we were instantly friends. Things escalated very quickly. Um, school holidays, uh, police locking at my door at 11 o'clock in the morning, Tom was in the na- back of an ambulance, out cold, he'd been found in a park. Did I know what drugs he took? I, I hadn't even known that he was taking drugs then. He was sniffing glue. He was doing everything he possibly could to destroy his brain, you know, because in my mind, he didn't want to be the smart kid. At Scotch, as expressions of rage against and rebellion against authority, I started to steal. I mean, I found myself on the outskirts of, of, of the accepted group at school. And I began to take an interest in, in graffiti as well. Graffiti was, I guess, a desperate attempt for status on the other side of the street. I was then given a list of psychologists. So I went every Saturday morning for about six months. I chose a young male because I thought he might relate more to him and be able to talk to him more. He was sitting there probing me for all these answers, this answers, this bloke in a, in a pink shirt. And my parents were paying him five, six hundred dollars an hour. And obviously, to give him their money's worth, he was diagnosing me with all this, all these disorders. In the end, he said, clearly, there's nothing going on at home. Everything's fine at home. There's something going on at school. I was an angry, surly teenager, and I didn't know how to express that anger. And it made matters worse that some bloke in a pink shirt was sitting there telling me what was wrong with me. I mean, it should have stayed in the family. I mean, my parents did the best with the skills they had and perhaps they weren't equipped to deal with this sort of thing, but that episode angered me a a great deal. One Thursday night, um, I don't know, he was in the garage at home, something had happened. He was standing in my car, he'd made a noose. He'd locked himself in the garage. It was incredibly terrifying for me. I contacted the school and said, there's clearly something happening at school. There was nothing going on at home. There was no issues at home. Everything was fine. I got passed on from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. And I was told that, oh, we've observed him in the playground, you know, everything. He's fine. He's happy at school. There's no problems. There must be something going on at home. So I thought, right, okay, I'll get him out of there. So... You know, I put it to Tom. I said, do you want to go back to Hale School? You know, I don't care. I'll remortgage the house. I'll do whatever it takes to be able to afford to put you back there. And he'd said to me, no, it's too late now. It's too late. So the full scholarship at Scotch was discarded and Tom went to yet another high school in Fremantle. John 23rd, where his father had attended. The headmistress was fantastic. I explained to her exactly what was going on. She followed him around the school for a couple of weeks, two, four, six weeks, can't remember. And she said, he's doing amphetamines. I can tell you what's going on. He's doing drugs. And she said to me, get him out of here, get him sorted out, and you can bring him back. 
she was the first one that actually I had no idea, you know, like I just thought he was an emotional teenager, bullied. I didn't know what was going on. I thought he was just mo- a moody 13-year-old, you know, had no idea. With my mate, um, who I was knocking around with, we began to pilfer these boxes of caffeine pills from the supermarket. This was the only kind of stimulant that we had access to and that sort of stimulated sort of feeling seemed to boost this self-confidence and esteem that I was lacking in. Um, so I began taking them at home at night time and staying up until early hours of the morning. I'd heard a little bit about speed up, heard that it was manufactured from these cold and flu pills and I knew my mum had some in her cabinet so I took them from her cabinet and crushed them up and put them in this big bag that I had and hid it in my drum kit and um, and that seemed like a, a pretty foolproof kind of hiding spot to me. I went behind the drum kit, put my hand inside the drum kit and found a whole heap of white powder, money, white powder, you know, you can imagine how I felt. I said to my husband, you know, what the hell shall I do? What shall I do? Shall I pour it down the toilet? What shall I do? You know, complete panic. He said, you need to ring the police. So, me. So, I did. You can imagine how I felt calling the police on my 13-year-old son. Tom was arrested and handcuffed in front of his family. A friendly cop told Tom's parents that a night in the cells would be a wake-up call. It didn't quite work out that way. They took me down to the police station, interviewed me about the drugs, and in my defiance, I I refused to comment or or to speak to anyone. I felt I'd been betrayed. Uh, Bail was refused. I was taken to Rangeview. Rangeview Juvenile Remand Centre. My shoes were taken off me, the shoelaces were taken out. Strip searched and showered. I slept on a gym mat. Uh, The air conditioning was up full blast. In a society without ritual, I guess that was my initiation into manhood. I suddenly had been cast out of my home. I felt that that angered me even even more a great deal that I've now found myself in this in this situation. Glenn Corbell's idea that you could be shocked out of this behaviour was misplaced. It backfired, yeah. I was bailed the next day to my parents and I was placed under quite strict conditions. Uh, I was on a 24-hour curfew, um, which I think had been designed with the intention of giving my parents greater control over me. Um, but instead, I was now, I'd now entered the revolving door of the criminal justice system. So any act of rebellion would now see me return to Rangeview. I just took advice from the people around me that were experienced in this. I didn't know what to do. You know, I had no idea. Did it make it worse? Did it make it better? Would it have got worse without any intervention? Yeah, he could have been dead. So you've got to step back and sort of say, OK, there are certain things I can deal with here. And there are certain things I can't deal with. Mm. Criminality, I can't deal with. I walked into the drug counselling for the first time and the first words she said to me was, your kids do drugs, your marriage is finished. That was her first words to me. And I went, no way, no way, it won't happen to us. No way, we're both on the same page. Two years later, I didn't have a marriage. Tom was being drawn inexorably towards ice. It seemed like the solution to all his problems. At this time, ICE was sweeping Perth. It was the meth capital of Australia. Well, I think I sorted out. I I went looking for it. I heard heard all sorts of stories and glorifying sorts of stories as well. Things to me that sounded thrilling. People uh, getting into high-speed chases on ice and the rush and 
and the rush of a shot and glorifying it in, in lots of ways and it ignited this sort of sordid thrill in me and it seemed like the panacea to to all my woes. I lacked in confidence and, and self-esteem and the way it was portrayed, it, it made it sound like it was it was a cure to all that. I smoked a bit of pot, that was about it. Yeah. Um, and suddenly I found myself, I had all these new friends, all these new contacts. Um, so once I got out of rehab, that was when the trouble started. I now had the inclination to seek out this drug and the contacts to do it. When I went into rehab, it was basically a school of crime. Um, I lived full-time with around 10 other kids. I was the youngest kid that had ever been through there by a couple of years. And so I went through the court system and as a result they were looking at alternative options rather than sending me to prison. So I was sent to rehab and I lived for three months with uh, ten other boys, lots of whom were experienced users and experienced criminals. And they basically schooled me on the, on the world of drugs. Lots of the guys were quite a lot older. But there was one kid who I got along quite well with. He was similar age to me, he was about 14 or 15. And once I got out, I started spending a bit of time with him. And he had, he had a predilection for downers, for depressant type drugs. People that take painkillers and, and downers and depressants are, are looking to numb some kind of pain. Whereas people that take ice and stimulants and things that pick you up are, are looking for a boost in courage and, and self-esteem and some kind of internal stimulation. Manor was into, he was into downers. He knew how to doctor shop, so he was going from doctor to doctor and getting prescriptions for Xanax and Valium, and he had a big stash of those at his, at his house. Um, so I started experimenting with all them. He gave me my first shot of Oxycontin when I was 14, so that was the first thing I injected. I, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I was vomiting and, and nauseous, and it, it, aside from the rush, it wasn't very pleasant. Um, but that was all I had access to for the time being. My mate's older brother, Stopper, as he was known, he showed me how to, how to manufacture ice in the pack laundry. He sent me out to do all this dirty work. I went out to a few chemists and bought some... At this stage of the game, you were still able to buy cold and flu tablets without registering over the counter. So I went out to a number of different chemists. I rode around on my push bike and got around 10 boxes or so. And got some butane from the servo and some batteries and he made a batch of uh, shake and bake, it's called. Out in, the, out in the back shed. Tom's father sent him out to the country to work on furniture removal trucks. He lasted six weeks. I obviously returned back to Perth with, with a bit of money in my pocket. So I thought I'd invest the money and went out looking to go and buy a few ounces of pot and, and start selling it to all my school friends. And then I, I asked Manor and he said, oh, uh, why don't you go and see this guy called Maddo? Um, so he put me in touch with Maddo and I spoke to Maddo and... He said he was able to arrange something for me that day, so I went up to arrange to meet him at the East Perth train station. And uh, I got off the train, it was this hot day. He had instructed me to go to some kind of, some flats with a green roof. I think he was, he was about 36 or 37 the first time I met him. Um, and when I, when I first met him, he, he came downstairs, he had no shirt on, uh, he had a pair of football shorts on. He had a kind of this wispy sort of beard, a uh, shaved head, and I think he had 11 or 12 separate skull tattoos. Um, he had a strange obsession with, with skulls and, and Star Wars figures. Star Wars figures? Star Wars figures. He had a, he had a huge collection of Star Wars figures, and he'd often... Uh, he, was dis he was disordered with mental illness. He was uh, manic-depressive. So he, he, uh, he invited me upstairs into his flat. He 
sold me an ounce at the inflated price of $400. I vaguely explained to him my motivations for buying the ounce, what I was going to do, and, and he he gave me instructions on, on, on how I should run the operation. Before I started injecting with that, I'd, I'd injected some of the shake and bake. Uh, it was this, this kind of gooey orange sort of stuff. It wasn't very good and it stung. Um, and I managed to get some speed off someone else that I injected, but uh, I was an amateur injector and most of it missed the vein and so I mean I kind of went to Matto for instruction I mean he acted reluctant to inject me for the first time because he obviously knew that that would be breaking the code but I assured him that I injected before and he was happy to do it so the first time I injected it was probably he wouldn't let me have have too much I mean there was this there was this kind of illusion of care there that he created I mean, he'd taken me on as his, his apprentice by this stage, so he was... He acted as if he was looking out for my best interests and, and teaching me and, and guiding me through this underworld that was fraught with danger. And where did the ice come from in the first place? Uh, Maddo, Maddo, so Maddo was a middleman, and so I'd go to Maddo's house. Sometimes he'd have some on hand, sometimes we'd have to go on a mission to go and get some. And so the first time he injected me as he mixed up this uh, I think it was about one and a half points of ice $150 worth I felt this sharp this sharp kind of elixir rise up my sharp tang rise up my throat it tasted a bit like strawberries and and, and battery acid and it began to spread throughout the rest of my body and there was a there was a slight rush so my eyes sort of began to wobble a little bit um and my vision became a little bit sharper. My eyes began to dart about the room a, a little, a little faster, and my palms became sweaty. My breathing became a bit more shallow straight away, um, and I immediately felt a whole great deal more cheerful. I just felt like I wanted to sit in the room with Mado and talk for hours and friendly and. I felt this false kind of joy. Uh, it felt like happiness in a in a barrel. But later on, as I as I began to experiment with more and have and have larger shots, I discovered the true rush uh, of taking ice when you have a, a big shot of ice. Tom joined a group of other misfits who were Matto's helpers, selling pot for a profit and then ploughing the money back into the ice that Matto supplied. I don't think he was he was bad or evil. He definitely did look out for the people that he that he took under his wing, but. His his motivations for taking people under his wing are, are dubious. You know, he's a he is a man of dubious moral vintage. I'd say <laughs> hidden agendas yeah. abounded. Yeah. No, I was young. I was I sought I sought risk. I sought danger. I went looking for these kinds of things, and when I found them, I was I was enthralled. Mm. It's pretty seedy and sleazy, though, right? Mm. It's like something out of train spotting. Yeah, yeah. With uh, with Maddow, I've I found this. There was a sense of, of belonging there. Anyone, anyone could go there, and, and he taught me the, the rules and, and the morals of the world that I was delving into. Uh, most of that code of conduct was around uh, injecting. It was a taboo to give someone their first shot. People that had hepatitis and, and bloodborne diseases, and if someone knew that they had a bloodborne disease, it was their responsibility not to give it to anyone else. Breaches of these code were punishable by serious violence. 
and I mean being so young a lot of people in that world were quite skeptical of me and a lot of people that I encountered tried to warn me away from it uh, advised me not to not to go into the world of ice uh, aggressively advised me and can you remember why you you ignored that since I'd been in a rehab I, I'd always been this young kid in this man's world and I was always trying to prove to other people that I wasn't a boy and that I, I knew just as much as they did and I was able to live up to these expectations. Uh, I wanted to prove to these people that I, I belonged in that world as well and they, they had no right to write me off just because of my age. As Tom's downward spiral continued, his parents' marriage disintegrated. My rock-bottom moment was the 11th of July 2009. Things couldn't get any worse for me. My father died that day. He had terminal cancer and my husband left me the same day. And I made the choice and decision to put my son into rehab back in that day because I was terrified of what he would do because I thought that um, he would potentially kill himself because he would blame himself for the breakdown of the marriage. That was probably the worst day ever. For me, I lost the three most important men in my life in the one day. In part two, Tom's hellish descent into addiction continues. How low can you go, you know? My life just gradually got worse and and worse. And these traumatic events began to increase in in magnification and intensity. And I realised that if I didn't chart a new course, that I was only going one of two ways, which was dead or in jail. And it would have happened within a matter of months, I believe. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolich. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Episode cover photograph by Philip Costello. Adam Shand at Large is a Podcast One Australia production.